Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Isidore Ryan. He is an editorial manager with the Swiss private bank, Banque Pictet, currently based in Paris. We will be discussing his newly published book, No Way Out, The Irish in Wartime France, 1939 to 1945, published in Dublin by Mercier Press, 2018. Isidore, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Well, I'm originally Irish, uh, so I I grew up in Ireland. I spent the first uh, 25 years or so of my life in Ireland, but I've lived for the last 30 years uh, abroad, essentially in France, also in Germany and the United States and Italy. So I, uh, I've traveled quite a lot. I've always had an interest in um, history, specifically the history of the two world wars and uh, Franco-Irish relations. That explains why I decided to write this book, which sort of uh, brings together my two great passions, which are Franco-Irish relations and uh, what happened in World War II. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? As I found out, uh, even in Ireland, the topic was not very well known. Um, uh, what inspired me was uh, trawled through the uh, archives of the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin, essentially, um, plus a few stories I'd heard in the grapevine about several individuals. Um, but as I say, uh, the main inspiration was the fact that not an awful lot of people knew a lot about what happened uh, with the Irish in France during that time. So I decided to fill a gap, a gap in the market, if you wish. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Uh, the, the story is, as I pointed out, is, uh, is it's, it's the story of the hundreds, we don't really know how many, maybe up to a thousand Irish people, some with Irish passports, others without, uh, who were stuck in France from 1939 to 1945, uh, their activities, their problems, um, uh, um, what became of them, what part they had in the resistance, what what happened to those that were ended up in detention, as well as uh, I take a look at uh, diplomatic relations between Dublin and Paris initially, and then with Vichy France, Ireland was one of, I think Ireland was the only English-speaking country that had an embassy in Vichy after um, the U.S. Uh, joined the war in December 1941. In fact, it, it, it still had a representation in Vichy after that. But certainly after 1942, Ireland was, I think, the only Irish, the only English-speaking country that was represented in Vichy, France. So uh, the people in Vichy had a pretty unique perspective on events. So I cover that quite a lot. Can you describe the relations between the Irish government and Vichy France? What role did the Irish legation in Vichy play during the Second World War? Uh, well, we should start from the beginning. The, the Irish had a, a legation, it wasn't called an embassy. Uh, because Ireland at the time had what was known as dominion status. It wasn't yet a republic. 
so had a, it wasn't fully independent in inverted commas though at that stage it was had basically all the uh, it was essentially independent to all to all intents and purposes. So it started off with a legation in, in Paris. Um, uh, and then when the Germans invaded in June 19, when in Germans invaded France, Blitzkrieg, May 1940, uh, they reached Paris on the 12th of June 1940, uh, at which stage um, all, all the diplomatic court decided it was best to leave Paris in case the city was uh, uh, was surrounded and there was a battle. So basically, the small Irish legation, or about four or five people, uh, careered across France, and they eventually, when things settled down, when it was decided where the new uh, État français was going to be established, they moved to Vichy, just where the seat of the French government, État français, was established under Philippe Patin. Uh, so the role was basically uh, a very complicated one. All was to keep relations alive with Vichy France, which was a recognized government. It was recognized by the Irish government. Vichy France had an embassy in Dublin. Um, so Ireland had an embassy in Vichy. So its role was to keep those the diplomatic um, ties alive. Uh, its role also was to uh, keep the ear to the ground and let Dublin know, the authorities in Dublin know what was going on in, 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 in France. Uh, and the other role they had to play was looking after these hundreds of, of Irish citizens on both sides of the uh, demarcation line dividing occupied France from what they call the Zone Libre, which was Vichy France. What new light does your book shed on the foreign policy of Amon de Valera? Um, not sure it's show it's signs like an awfully new light on, on foreign Irish foreign policy uh, was I wouldn't say it was very complicated it was actually very simple in the sense that the idea was to make sure that Ireland kept neutral Ireland was neutral right throughout the war uh, but it was a type of neutrality which was favorable to the allies I think we could say um, but Ireland was not at war with anybody, least of all with uh, Vichy. And the, the head of the uh, the secretary, in other words, the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs was a guy by the name of uh, Joseph Walsh. Uh, now he had, at least at the beginning, uh, 1940, 1941, he had actually quite pro-German views, pro-Axis views. Uh, on the other hand, the guys in Vichy and in other legations around Europe, Irish legations around Europe, were more kind, more favorably disposed towards the Allies. I think it's the way you could put it. So there was a certain tension uh, between the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin and the ambassadors on the ground in Europe, and that sort of comes true in uh, in the archives. Um, the other thing to be said about Ireland's relations with Vichy were that Dublin made something of a faux pas at the end of the war because the um, minister to Vichy, uh, whose name was Murphy, um, right throughout the occupation, when France was liberated in August 1944, they sent Murphy, Sean Murphy, up to Paris 
this was a terrible hope on the part of the Irish because obviously the Gaulle didn't want an ambassador in Paris who'd already been serving as an ambassador to Vichy. As far as the French was concerned, it should have been a there should have been a clean sweep. They should have an Irish should have appointed new ambassador, not somebody who had been serving in Vichy. Uh, so there was a period of tension between France and Ireland um, in the immediate aftermath of the war. Other than France, which other countries in Europe had significant Irish populations? How did their experiences during World War II compare and contrast with the Irish in France? Uh, very good question, because my latest book was actually on the Irish in Italy during the same period. Um, uh, there, the, 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 there is a certain contrast we made all right. Obviously, in Italy, most uh, there were similar numbers of Irish in Italy and in France. In Italy, they were, they were mostly ecclesiastics, as you can imagine, in Rome. There was a big, and still is a big Irish seminary in, in Rome, and there were two other uh, Irish colleges, Irish churches in Rome at the time. Uh, from my research, what I can see is that, um, what I could see is that um, uh, there were basically no attempt to detain any Irish national in Italy whatsoever, either by the Italians or by the Germans. By contrast, in France, uh, a lot of Irish ended up in civil internment camps, but I'm sure we talk about that. Speaking of the internment camps, there are many internment camps in France, civilian internment camps in France, yes. that your book makes reference to. They include the Royalieu internment camp, the Levernay internment camp, the Grand Sazerne internment camp, the Saint-Denis internment camp, the Gorse internment camp, the Vittel internment camp, and the Besançon internment camp. Who was held there? Where were these camps located? What were conditions like there? Who were the detainees? What kinds of suffering took place in these internment camps? How were these camps similar or different with one another? if you could compare and contrast them. Yeah, so in fact, the names you mentioned there, they're, they're actually different kinds of camp. Um, I, I, the, the, the main ones for civilians, which is where most of the Irish and most British and most foreign nationals ended up, were uh, initially Besançon, with an old fort in Besançon, which is not far from the Swiss border. Uh, and Saint Denis, which was um, um, which was an old, what you call the, which was an old military barracks in Saint Denis outside Paris. Um, the other ones you mentioned, the one in Royalieu, um, which is outside Compiègne, just north of Paris, was essentially a kind of transit camp, and a lot of people ended up there were subsequently deported to Germany. Uh, Le Vernet, which you mentioned, and Gours. Uh, had originally been sent up, set up before the war by the French uh, to place uh, Spanish Republican refugees after the end of the Spanish Civil War. Um, so they all had different functions, if that's the word. Um, suffering, I suppose, means <laughs> suffering in places like Besançon was the lack of heat, it's the lack of heating. 
most of the people in Besançon, after there were so many complaints of Besançon, which was administered by the French, not by the Germans, um, that, that a lot of people simply let go after a few months. Uh, some of them ended up in Vitel, which people may know as it's famous for its mineral water, which is in eastern France. Um, and again, a lot of people were subsequently let go from Vitel, and Vitel was actually used uh, to house some Polish Jews uh, just shortly before the liberation in 1944. Um, Le Varnay is quite famous. There's a famous book by Arthur Kustler, uh, The Scum of the Earth, which describes uh, Le Varnay. French, after the outbreak of war, they simply sent all, as well as the Spanish Republicans, uh, after the end of the Spanish Civil War, they actually sent all the foreign undesirables down to Le Verne. Uh, so a few Irish ended up in Le Verne as, a, as foreign undesirables. Um, Saint-Denis was, as I say, mostly for male civilians uh, who had British passports, say, so were, so were considered aliens. The British, by the way, had the same system. Anybody with a German passport, they sent to the Isle of Man. Uh, so it's not a uniquely evil German <laughs> internment center. So it's basically it for that. Thank you. How did the Irish government respond to pleas from its expatriates in France to escape? How did it treat bequests to return to Ireland? Very miserly. It's a short answer. Um, Ireland at that time was extremely poor. <clears throat> Today it's one of the richest countries in Europe. At the time it was one of the poorest. It was also very isolated. Foreign currency was uh, in short supply or, or hard currency was in short supply. So the idea of helping the Irish in, 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 in stranded in France by sending them money was um, posed a significant problem to the uh, bureaucrats in Dublin. Uh, as well as that, the transport links were, there were no direct transport links. Uh, anybody who wanted to get out of occupied France first had to get a whole series of visas. They had to get exit visas uh, from France and they had to get an uh, entry visa to Spain. Then they had to get an extra, a, a, entry visa to Portugal. And then from Portugal, they either got um, a, a ship, a cargo ship, which were only about two or three per month, Lisbon up to Ireland, or there was also a, a flight uh, two or three times a week from Lisbon to Bristol in England. But that was exorbitantly uh, expensive. Uh, if you read any of the reports, there's nobody stuck in occupied France that could ever hope to pay for the airfare from Lisbon uh, to England, even if they could get, get all of these visas um so the treatment of irish the other thing is as well irish who wasn't there's the whole problem of who is entitled to irish an irish passport and who wasn't there are a whole load of irish people born in ireland before independence in 1922 who had their british passport and in fact a lot of them preferred to hold on to their british passport one of them was james joyce <laughs> best well best known example is james joyce never had an irish passport uh, a lot of these people prefer to hold on to the British passport because there was a system uh, the, the British had, were far more better organized. They were able to organize food parcels 
and remittances to um, British passport holders through the Red Cross and through the American embassy. The Americans didn't enter the war until December 41. So the Irish didn't have that. So a lot of Irish people were to hold on to British passports. So again, and the Irish, as I say, were very, very cautious about giving out, um, about having or having to look after people or having to hand over foreign currency. So I don't think it was, uh, I don't, um, uh, they could probably have been more inventive, but I wasn't away. It was, uh, it was, uh, they had a pretty miserly approach, I think is fair to say. Can you tell us about Irish assistance to persecuted Jews? What are some examples? Yeah, again, here the picture is pretty mixed, I would say. Um, where do we start? In fact, there's, there's only one Irish national uh, who died in the Holocaust. Her name was Etta Steinberg, I think is her name. Uh, she was born, I think, in Czechoslovakia, but she grew up in Dublin and she was an Irish passport holder. And she married um, somebody, a Belgian Jew, I think, maybe who worked in the jewelry trade in Antwerp. Uh, but she was rounded up in France in 41 or early 1942. Uh, there's no real indication in the files that um, the Irish authorities did a huge amount to try and get her out. But I, in fact, I think it happened so quickly that they couldn't do anything anyway. Um, apart from that, informa information in any case was not, nobody had, they knew an awful lot about what was going on. The Irish contacted Berlin, they had their embassy delegation in Berlin. There was a lot of uh, communication with Berlin about what was happening. Uh, Berlin didn't know an awful lot. To, Irish legation in Berlin knew as much as what the Germans wanted to tell them. So um, there was also um, on the Irish part that they shouldn't interfere uh, with in matters that didn't concern them, if that's, if that's the right way, uh, because that might compromise their neutrality or the way that Irish citizens were being treated, etc. So they didn't actually do an awful lot uh, there was a representation in 1943 from a some sort of Jewish council in, in, in London that went over to Dublin and it proposed uh, that uh, Jewish children should be taken from France. And in fact, Dublin took on board this uh, suggestion. They were willing to take in 100 Jewish children and they were also willing to uh, grant visas to a few hundred other Jews who were in Vitel, which I previously mentioned, where a number of Jews that were brought to Vitel, I think the idea was to eventually exchange them with South America or something like that. But the Irish had were willing to take them in at least temporarily and were willing also to take in 100 Jewish children. But nothing came of any of those initiatives. Um, so that's all I can say. Apart from Etta Steinberg, she was the only Irish citizen um, there was one individual who afterward was quite prominent uh, in Irish life, Irish cultural life. His name was Serge Philippe. So 
ran a company, a hat company in Galway. Uh, he lost his wife and his daughter in the Holocaust. Uh, and he kept, he was in Galway or he was in Ireland. His daughter and his wife were in uh, France. He couldn't do anything for them. He except write to the, uh, the to Dublin and plead with the Irish authorities to get them out, but um, that came to nothing either. So they both died in in, in Auschwitz. And there's also the case of the at the time he was Lord Mayor of Dublin, or subsequently him Lord Mayor of Dublin. His his name was Ben Briscoe. He was uh, Jewish. He was very prominent in De Valera's party. Uh, political party. He was also very prominent in um, the Irish War of Independence. So he was a very good friend of De Valera. He had, um, he also tried to work for Jewish people in, in France and occupied France. Uh, as I say, uh, the Irish were not really in any great position to do anything. So uh, that's all I can say. Part of this uh, initiative that was inspired by this visit from the people from London, taking 100 Jewish children plus grand visas to a few hundred others, it's not an awful lot that was done. What contribution did Irish men make to the French resistance in France during World War II? Oh, that's, that's another interesting question. There are a few examples um, of uh, Irish res resistors. The most famous... Uh, uh, member of the French resistance, Irish member of the French resistance was Samuel Beckett, the writer. He actually got the medaille to Croix de la Guerre after the war for his deeds. He, his job was uh, work, he was almost, he, he, he barely a, a avoided arrest uh, in 1942 as well. Um, his job was basically translating reports. Um, and acting as a courier, I think, for a resistance network that was basically closed down in '42, as almost all resistance networks were all closed down by the Germans. They weren't very successful. Uh, so uh, Beck Beckett was lucky to get away. He ended up in the unoccupied zone. There another lady who um, who possibly stuck her neck out even more was a lady called um, Janie McCarthy from County Kerry, uh, she was involved in a huge range of uh, resistance networks. Essentially, at the start, uh, her, her job was uh, going out to military bases and sending back reports to London uh, via radio. Uh, but she ended up, for the in the latter part of the occupation, her job was basically um, ferrying uh, down Allied airmen across Paris or hiding them. Uh, um, and she too got uh, Quad La Guerre and I think she got um, Medal of Valor from the Americans for her work as well. Um, then there are other individuals, two or three who ended up, who died in German uh, concentration camps. Um, a few names that come to mind. One is a guy called Atkinson. There's another guy called, um, there were a couple of, uh, one was Robert Armstrong. There was a couple of guys who were gardeners in the British cemeteries, military cemeteries that were left after World War I. And they became involved in resistance networks. Robert Armstrong, for example, died in, uh, in Germany and he was deported. 
Uh, there was another nursing sister whose name was also McCarthy. Uh, she was involved in another uh, resistance network that was closed down by the Germans. She survived. She was sent to Ravensbrück. She survived Ravensbrück. There was another lady who I've written a separate article on just across the border in Belgium, a lady called Agnes Flanagan, who also survived Ravensbrück. Um, so, yeah, there's... Um, I've read somewhere that you can there's could be up to about thirty or fifty Irish men that were one way or other involved in the French resistance in World War Two. But then there are also examples in my book of people who went to the other side. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. <laughs> can you tell us about Count O'Kelly? Oh yes. <laughs> Count O'Kelly, I spent a lot of time uh researching because uh he's I felt uh, unjustly unjustly forgotten figure from Irish history. Count Kelly was the first uh, Irish ambassador to France. He was appointed in 1931. Uh, so he actually opened the French uh, legation to Paris. He was unceremoniously kicked out in 1935 in murky circumstances. Um, basically, he had been appointed by the previous government, which is pro-treaty government. Uh, I don't know if your listeners know about the in and outs of Irish politics in the civil war. He was an appointee of the pro-treaty government. So de Valera won the uh, general elections in 1932 in Ireland. Uh, he obviously went, started to appoint anti-treaty, uh, he preferred anti-treaty people in top appointments. So he got rid of for Kelly de Gala, but he, he wasn't entirely got rid of. He was given an honorary title. So he was still st sticking around. He still had some sort of vague connection to the Irish embassy when war broke out. So when the rest of the legation were turfed out of Paris and were told to go down to Vichy, that's where the official government was, um, he was in a unique position of being able to stay in, in Paris because he didn't officially belong to the legation. If you were in the legation, you had to be in, in Vichy. That's where the Germans and that's where the Vichy French went when you wanted you. But of course, mostly the Irish people were in northern France and Paris. So Kelly was left looking after the uh, Irish community in Paris. He also ran, he, at the time he was running a, a wine company, a wine import company. Uh, though I can't imagine he was doing, he, he imported, exported wine uh, to, to, to the UK. Of course, he wasn't able to uh, do that once the war broke out. So instead of that, he started, <laughs> just to tell you how how everything is not black and white. Uh, uh, to keep his business going, he uh, started selling his wine to the Germans. Uh, he was based in Place Vendôme. Place Vendôme was the center of the entire German administration in Paris. So he, his top customers were people like Hermann Göring and the German Luftwaffe. And at the same time, he was helping Irish citizens in one <laughs> various forms, well, any way he could, getting people out of detention, out of internment camps. So. That's Count O'Kelly. So he went through the entire war. He survived it. He ended up as um, ambassador to Lisbon after the war. Who is Michael Farmer? Can you contextualize him? Yes, he's one of the people who went to the other, uh, over to the other side. Michael Farmer was born in Cork. Um, uh, I, I, he left. Cork, he left Ireland in his youth. He ended up in the UK. He, he, I think he had some money, but I, I, I don't know. He, he progressively 
became sort of peripherally involved in this in the film industry and he met Gloria Swanson uh, who he married in I think 1931. Uh, the marriage was relatively brief I think uh, it only lasted for two or three years. The guy was a uh, inveterate philanderer so uh, he found himself on the Côte d'Azur in 1940. Côte d'Azur was uh, in the free zone, wasn't occupied by the Germans. But he still managed to get himself into uh, fights and bars with members of the Italian consulates and the German consulates. So eventually he was banished from the Côte d'Azur and he ended up in southwestern France in a place called Brive. Uh, and it's there that the story becomes very murky <clears throat> indeed, because he ended up um, uh, falling in with the local German garrison. The story is very unclear. Uh, then he went, went boasting around in, 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 in bars that he could get people arrested. And there's another story of him shooting a resistance of out of the top of his car and all sorts of things. So basically, he was put on trial by the French after the Second World War. At this stage, the Irish did actually intervene uh, and managed to have him um, freed after quite a long, uh, after quite a long um, trial. I, I imagine he spent a, a few weeks or a few months at least in prison while the trial was going on. But uh, anyway, he was. Um, Suspected of uh, what they call intelligence avec l'ennemi, of dealings with the Germans, uh, but he was the French let him go at the end of the war. There were so many trials, so many people that basically they they were were happier to end a lot of these trials rather than pursue them any longer. So the farmer got away. Who is Patrick Sweeney? Why is he noteworthy? Patrick Sweeney, <laughs> Patrick Sweeney is another person that written a separate article on because I had I had contact with his family in England. So Patrick Sweeney is a complete mystery. Even his family in England, who I, I, I uh, had contact with, I, I did not even know who he was, who their own uncle or father was, uh, because he kept his secrets to himself after the war. In fact, a lot of people I, I looked into afterwards, they never wanted to talk about their experiences during the war. The same is true of uh, the people I followed in Italy. Very few people, uh, it, was, it was such a difficult experience. A lot of people did not want to talk about it. So Sweeney was obviously a case in point. He told nobody about what he got up to. Basically, he he appears on the radar in 1939 in Paris. The French uh, put him in prison uh, for theft. He was caught thieving from... Uh, hotel rooms. Uh, so they sent them down to, um, they originally sent them to Roland Garros, uh, which uh, you know from the tennis tournament. Uh, but at the time, Roland Garros in 1939, 1940 was a detention camp, French detention camp, where they sent uh, foreign undesirables like Sweeney, who, did, who, who seemingly didn't have any identification there's another story that he, he deserted from the British army, but uh, that's what his family believed. <laughs> but I'm not sure that's the case. Um, 
any case, he, he didn't have a visa, he didn't have a passport. The French locked him up in Roland Garros. And then they sent him to uh, Le Vernet, uh, which we've talked about already. And he was actually interviewed by a journalist from the New York Times in 1941, where he claimed he had relatives in the States and they should be getting out. But at the stage, he'd been locked up for about two years. So at that stage, he contacted the Irish legation in Vichy saying, hey, get me out of here. And I shouldn't be here. Um, I've been locked up here because I was a member of the, uh, I was um, in the Spanish Civil War. I fought with the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. Then he weaved the whole story about how they'd been locked up in Barcelona and he just escaped from prison in Barcelona. And then the French had picked him up. Uh, and since then he'd been left in Le Vernet, which originally had been for Spanish. Uh, no, first he said he'd been in Gours, which you also mentioned. We don't know if he was or not, probably not. Gours, we don't know. it's very hard to know what anything about Gours because all the papers were destroyed. There's no records on Gours. Uh, but anyway, Gours, like Le Vernet, was essentially at the, originally for Spanish prisoners. There was also a section for common law prisoners, which was what um, uh, Sweeney was. I, I think Sweeney thought that he'd stand a better chance of getting help from the uh, Irish legation. But they told him he was a political prisoner from the Civil War rather than a thief that had been picked up in Paris. So he weaved this incredible story. The Irish contacted the uh, veterans of the Spanish Civil War to check out his story. Nobody could buy chase for him. So this went on for virtually the entire war. Um, <clears throat> was eventually Vichy, the French handed uh, um, Sweeney over to the Germans who sent him up to Royalieu. And he spent a few months in Royalieu in Compiègne. And then they sent him over to Buchenwald. And they sent him over to Buchenwald as a political prisoner because obviously he had claimed he'd been in, fought for the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. So fair enough. So this sent them off to uh, a camp called Kreuzberg in um, in um, in Silesia. Uh, and he spent a few months there um, as a political prisoner. <laughs> I'm not sure he was. And he was eventually freed by, I, pres uh, I don't know who or either the Russians or the Americans. He had turned up in Naples in June 1945, in any case. So he'd been in prison the entire length of the war and he was imprisoned by the French and then by the Germans but he, he survived it he survived it all and he went back to England he became a fisherman in the north of England in Fleetwood but he never he never clarified the story to any of his entourage or anybody so I had to work with papers in the French archives and the archives of in Dublin that's all I had who is Janie McCarthy can well, Janie McCarthy, we've, we've already discussed. Well, she was, she was. I think the, there's now a statue to her uh, in Killarney in County Kelly, Kerry. She was from Killarney. She went over to uh, France quite early. She studied in France, uh, and then she became a teacher in the west of France. Um, so she found herself in Paris. In the Rue Saint Anne, in the center of France, in Paris, a very small apartment uh, when France was overrun, she very, very quickly became involved in resistance activities. Uh, as I say, she, she was in she was involved in some of the first 
networks gathering intelligence and sending it back to uh, London via radio. Um, she too was very lucky to uh, avoid capture. She was part of a um, network called the Réseau Vano, which was headed up by a lady called Elizabeth Barnier, I think was her name. And Barnier was um, was uh, was arrested and sent to Ravensbrück. Janie McCarthy was meant to meet her in her apartment that very same evening that Barnier was was arrested. Fortunately, she was delayed, so she avoided capture, just like Beckett, who were both very lucky to avoid being arrested. So Janie McCarthy avoided Ravensbrück uh, in 1942. That didn't stop her from becoming involved in, in other networks, as I said before, mostly this consisted of uh, helping um, under on Allied airmen getting out of Paris. So, um, yeah, that's what she got up to. Again, uh, at the end of her, the end of, she was an extremely modest person. I mean, she got the Quad La Guerre uh, from the goal after the war. She got the Medal of Valor. I think she got a reward from the British as well. But she lived an extremely modest existence. Um, she died in 64. She was buried in um, in the sub in Le Valois in the northern suburbs of Paris, but uh, there was nobody to renew the concession on her grave, so there's just no she her grave is not marked or anything. As I say, I think in part because of the book I wrote, uh, <laughs> a number of people got together and put a statue up for in Killarney and County Kerry. So, can you tell us about Serge Philipson? Why is he yes? Yeah, again, I mentioned him before, and uh, Serge Philippeson was originally from Warsaw. He was Jewish. He was convinced by the Irish um, indirectly. He, he had his brother-in-law was a guy called Orbach, um, who was an entrepreneur of some sort. So the Irish came over to Paris in 1937, looking for investment, looking for people to invest in for, in Ireland. And so they convinced Orbach to set up a hat business in Galway. Orbach convinced his brother-in-law, Serge Philippeson, uh, to go over to manage this outfit for him in Galway. So he went over, and he went over with his family, who was uh, family, his wife, Sophie, and um, a daughter. So they went over in 1937. Uh, unfortunately, the wife and daughter decided to go back to France. wasn't a very good idea because they wanted the French education or whatever. Um, not a particularly good idea. Serge Philippe stayed in Ireland. So his wife and daughter were got down to the free zone, I think. So that was the Vichy France. Uh, so they would have been relatively safe there until at least until 1942. After 1942, the Germans invaded the free zone and they were picked up, um, Sophie and her daughter, at the end of 42, beginning of 1943. So Serge Philippe saw in Ireland did all he could to try and get them out. But they, they, he couldn't. There was nothing he could do. So he lost, um, he lost his uh, wife and daughter in the Holocaust. Uh, after the war, he was involved in um, a lot of French, uh, Franco-Irish committees. He's a patron of the arts and he's quite a high profile member of the French community in, in Ireland after the war. 
but uh, I think he felt a measure of guilt that he hadn't been able to save his wife and daughter. Can you tell us about Francis Stewart? Why is he significant? Yes. <laughs> Francis Stewart is another well-known author, at least he's very well-known in, 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 in Ireland. He's not as well-known as James Joyce or Samuel Beckett, but he's, he's well-known in the Irish literary canon. His masterwork is a book called Blacklist Section H, which is essentially his autobiography. Um, Francis Stewart was actually born in Australia of Irish parents. He was involved in the IRA in the War of Independence, um, and he remained close to the IRA. He was married to Isolt Gunn, who was Maud Gunn's uh, daughter. Um, they separated uh, by 1939. I mean, they, they, they progressively distanced from each other. So in 1939, Stuart accepted an offer to go to Berlin to lecture in English. I think in part to get away from Isolt Gunn. Um, so he Blacklist Section H recounts his travels across Europe in 1939 in Paris. He stayed some time in Paris, then essentially in Berlin, where he set out the war in Berlin. He actually broadcast um, for the Ireland Redaction, which is the Irish. The, Irish, the Germans had a propaganda station or that was set up to broadcast to, to Ireland. <clears throat> and Francis Stewart broadcasts uh, several occasions to Ireland on behalf of the Germans. Um, so he so he spent the entire war in Berlin, not the entire war, last few months, it, the bombing was so heavy that he decided it was better to leave. So he left Berlin, he got down as far as um, Austria, um, Bregenz on the border with Switzerland with his girlfriend, mistress, and lady called Madeleine Meissner. And he left uh, Madeleine in Bragenz and made it over to Paris. So he floated around Paris for a few months, looking for help from the Irish legation, which again was not, not a, lot, a lot of help was forthcoming from the Irish legation because Stuart was an embarrassment for the, at this stage, he broadcast for the Germans. Uh, yeah, legation didn't really want an awful lot to do with Stuart. Um, but in any case, he lied low for a while in, in, in France after the war. He brought over Madeleine Meissner. They lied low for about five or six years. They were friendly with another well-known Irish writer called Liam O'Flaherty. They eventually made it back to Ireland in 1951. Uh, and then he brought, brought out, again, his Meisterwerk, uh, Blacklist Section H in the 1970s. Um, but it was only subsequently that his activities in Berlin in the war became well known and it became a, <laughs> a, I don't mean particularly politically correct. He was a member of uh, Estona, which is the equivalent of, I suppose you'd call it the Académie Française. It's a, of, um, it's a, a kind of um, cultural body that brings all together all the great and the good in Irish cultural life. Uh, Stuart was a member and uh, there was a big controversy in the 1990s about kicking him out of East Dona, the equivalent of the, of the Académie Française. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he was or not, but he eventually he died. He died, he was only about 
15 years ago at the age of over 100, I think. So that's what I can say about that. Can you tell us about Paul Leon? Paul Leon, yes. Now, that's another interesting Jewish connection. Um, Paul Leon was um, James Joyce's, um, I suppose we call him secretary or factotum. Um, I think he's a white Russian. He originally came from Russia. Um, so he was very close to Joyce. They had a temporary falling out and complicated story in the 1930s, but by the outbreak of war, they were close again. And in fact, Paul Leon followed Joyce down to um, a small village near Vichy when pa Joyce left Paris just before Christmas, 1939. Uh, but then he went back to Paris and Joyce asked him to get into his flat in the Rue de Vignes, 16th arrondissement, where Joyce had all his papers. So Paul Léon organized for um, the rescue of all James Joyce's papers. Without them, we'd have nothing. Uh, all these papers afterwards went to the National Library in Ireland. Or most of them, I wouldn't say all of them, <laughs> most of them went to the Irish National Library in Ireland. Some of Joyce's possessions after the war were, were actually sold, uh, went in different directions. But things like the drafts of Finnegan's Wake, etc., uh, were essentially saved by Paul Léon, who carted them across Paris in the summer of 1940. Um, now, Paul Léon was not in a comfortable position being a Russian Jew in Paris in 1941-42, and he was told he should leave uh, as quickly as possible, but he... he uh, Samuel Beckett told him to leave um, as quickly as he could, but he was picked up in 1942. The reason he hung around was he, he, he said his son, I think his name was Alexander, had to do his back, his, his, his final school exam, and that's why he was sticking around. But uh, in any case, the Germans picked him up, and uh, he was first sent to Drancy, where he was visited by Beckett, and then he was shipped to Auschwitz, where he died. Um, again, there were some sort of half-hearted attempts by the Irish authorities to get him out. But again, since he was an Irish citizen, the thinking was, well, we don't really have an awful lot uh, of uh, weight to bring the case, to bring the bear on this case. So that was it. Can you tell us about Concremin? Concremin is another interesting character. He was. Um, there was a, a, a biography, a separate biography written of Con Kremen. Con Kremen, Sean Murphy, um, or Kelly de Gala, um, Gerardo Kelly de Gala, they all came from what was known as Clongo's Mafia. Clongo's Wood is a very well-known uh, private school outside uh, Dublin run by the Jesuits. Um, so sort of the creme of the Irish bourgeoisie, I suppose, uh, went to Clongo's Wood and still do. So this is where all Con Kremen and the diplomatic at core at the time largely came from Clongo's Wood, which is why they were called the Clongo's Mafia. So Con Kremen's was part of the uh, Irish legation in Paris. I think he was second secretary, the actual uh, minister or, or ambassador was Sean Murphy. He too came from Clongos. Uh, Con Cremens 
um, he was quite young at the time. He was sent from Vichy in at the end of 1942 up to Berlin to replace the German, uh, the, 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 the previous ambassador, who was a guy called Warnock, whose nerves were shattered by that stage, I think. Uh, I think in 1943. So Con Kremens spent the final two years of the war as Ireland's ambassador in Berlin. I think they actually shifted the um, embassy outside Berlin because this, with so many air raids, the Irish embassy was actually destroyed in an um, air raid in 1943. All the records were destroyed, unfortunately. So there's not an, the, no, unfortunately, all the, a lot of the German Irish embassy records from Berlin were destroyed in November 43 by RAF. But Con Kremen was there from 43 to 45. Um, now, because he was a diplomat, because Ireland was neutral, uh, he signed the uh, Livre d'Or. What's the Livre d'Or? The visitor's book. Hitler's visitor's books, or the, the visitor's books for the Reichskanzlerei every now and now and again. So, for example, uh, there was the, um, the attempt on Hitler's life on the, the, the 20th of July, 44, plot against Hitler. So there was, um, there was, there was a livre d'or, there was a best wish, a book of best wishes that was opened in the Reichskanzlerei the day afterwards and Tom Kremen signed. He also signed, uh, which is more regular, I suppose, 1st of January, New Year's Day. Third, and he also signed uh, on the day of Hitler's birthday, which I think was the 30th of April. So he was signing these documents all the time, saying just as a way of as a token of presence, I suppose. But Con Kremens, for example, would have been involved in, in, in Francis Stewart's case. He was very reticent about giving any help whatsoever to somebody like Francis Stewart. Who was Susan Hilton? Can you tell us about her? Susan Hilton was another lady who washed up uh, in Berlin and ended up working for the Irland Redaktion transmitting programs to Ireland, but she was an alcoholic. She was, again, an interesting story. She'd originally been involved in um, Mosley's uh, British fascists, um, in Oswald Mosley's uh, outfit in, in England. Um, she had some vague relationship with Ireland. She certainly had a brother in Ireland I think she claimed her father was from Ireland or something like that. But she set out from Glasgow to join her husband in the Far East in 1940. And her ship was torpedoed by a German raider. And the German raider picked up uh, the crew and passengers on this British ship and put them on a different ship, a Norwegian ship, and made its way back to Europe. And this. Norwegian ship, a steamer, was was torpedoed. So she was torpedoed twice in the space of a couple of weeks. Uh, she was picked up uh, by the Germans, brought to Bordeaux, uh, Royan, and then she ended up in Paris initially um, with another drunk Irish person called um, McGowan, a doctor, who had also been shipwrecked twice in the space of a couple of weeks in the same ships. Uh, 
she tried to make herself useful. I mean, I suppose it's understandable. She had fascist sympathies already. Um, so she tried to make herself useful. She did some journalism for the Germans in, 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 in Paris. She also made a point of going to the Irish to see O'Kelly de Gala. O'Kelly de Gala rather carelessly granted her a um, temporary Irish passport. Uh, but which she used to actually go to Berlin. So she spent most of the war in uh, in Germany on the, uh, working for the Irland Redaction, along with Francis Stewart and a few other individuals. Um, so uh, yeah, that's all right. She was put on trial by the British after the war, and I think she spent a few years in prison. She ended up as a pet shop owner in the south of England, died in the 1950s. She actually wrote a book when she was in Germany um, called An Iran Aleptas Den Seekrieg, An Irish Woman Experiences the War at Sea, uh, which recounts her experiences of Paris during the Second World War, uh, during the first year of war, and her, how she was treated well by the Germans when she was with torpedoes, etc. Can you describe the history and evolution of the Irish community in France before World War II? How did the various Irish in France arrive there? When, where, why, and how did they come to France? How long were they living there prior to World War II? Which, if any, of the figures that you alluded to in your book were born there? And can you describe their lives prior to the outbreak of World War II? So, I, I mean, Ireland has had very strong historic links with France for centuries. Um, for obvious reasons, Ireland, France, on various occasions provided help to Irish rebels against the British. So um, a quite quite a tight relationship, I would say. Um, uh, the outset of war, of Second World War, the figures vary. As I said before, it depends what you mean by Irish. A lot of the, the, the number of Irish passport holders were probably a few hundred. But you could double that number to include Irish people who had British passports, who had either forgotten to exchange them against Irish ones or preferred to hold on to British ones for whatever reason. So I think we could safely say there were about a thousand or so Irish people in France. What were they doing there? There were a few ecclesiastics. There was an Irish college in the center of France, in the Rue des Irlandais. It's still there today. Um, there was um, the main Catholic church in Paris, English-speaking Catholic church at the time, was run by the Irish Passionists on the Avenue Auche, uh, near the Arc de Triomphe. And there was um, there were convents around the city which had a fair percentage of Irish nuns present. There was one uh, convent come boarding house uh, in the Rue Morillot, run by the first poor servants of Christ, which was entirely Irish, where a lot of Irish girls ended up during the war uh, destitute. Uh, it was the last place they could turn to. So apart from, from priests and nuns, most of the Irish would have been um, governesses. At the time, that was a practice for middle-class families was to employ English-speaking governesses, two English teachers like Jenny McCarthy, 
Uh, you had a lot of people around Paris working in stud farms or as jockeys. Uh, the country west of Paris is, is well-known horse racing country. Uh, then you had diplomats and then you had various other people doing who are married to Irish, to, married to French women, people who had served in World War One as soldiers and stayed behind. Um, so it was quite varied. Um, the majority would not have been well off, um, which goes a long way to explaining why a lot of them didn't get out of France when it was invaded. Uh, a lot of them were women. I suppose I would suspect the majority were women and the majority were governesses. Um, that's really all I can say. Officially, the Irish embassy uh, in Paris opened up in 1931. Um, and um, yeah, I moved to Vinci in June 1940 and was back in Paris in October 1944. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about your subsequent work that you have been focused on since completing this one? Uh, yes, I just completed, uh, I've just published a book uh, called um, Roman Imbroglio, the Irish and wartime Italy, uh, which turns the focus on the Irish in, in Italy in, in, uh, instead of France this time. Um, so yeah, uh, the story is slightly difficult, different. I, I, I think we could say that the Irish were treated a bit better in Italy than they were in France. Um, so yeah, that's what I've done. I've also another book uh, called Irish Paris, which is the history of the Irish in Paris through the centuries. Those sound like amazing and formidable projects. Uh, I feel so grateful to have spent time with you in the course of our dialogue, learning from your eloquent and erudite wisdom. As we end today's dialogue, I am signing off by stressing how grateful and humbled I am to be in dialogue with Isidore Ryan. Isidore Ryan and I have been discussing his newly published book, No Way Out, The Irish in Wartime France, 1939-1945, published in Dublin by Mercier Press. 2018. Isidore is an editorial manager with the Swiss private bank Banque Piquet, currently based in Paris.